Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast, small talk, big topics. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Whitson. With me today is my co-host, CSZ. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I am pretty good. I'm excited about today. We have two of the authors of the recent AGA clinical practice update on management of pancreatic necrosis. We have Professor of Medicine Todd Barron, who is the Director of Interventional Endoscopy at UNC. And then we got Dr. Andrew Wang, also a Professor of Medicine, also a Director of Interventional Endoscopy, but at UVA. So I am excited. Same here. And I think pancreatic necrosis is one of those scary topics. Used to be all surgery, but now there's so much advancement over the years where we can start managing it endoscopically and offer patients an alternative. So it's great to hear from these pioneers of these methods who've also perfected their skill to see how they manage pancreatic necrosis, how they work with surgeons and radiologists, nutrition to really treat these complicated situations in patients. Yeah, I know this isn't my clinical wheelhouse. I know this isn't your clinical wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. So it is a complicated topic. And it's one that, as you mentioned, really has evolved, it seems, especially from a therapeutic endoscopy standpoint over the years. So I'm excited for the two of them who have really been at the forefront to kind of bring this clinical practice update to life and really highlight some of the key areas and kind of give us a sense of the changes that have happened over time. There has been a lot of innovation, and I think that may be something that stands out about this podcast compared to our other ones with advanced endoscopy, the evolution and innovation and how the career paths came to be. Because we can imagine 30 years ago, 40 years ago, endoscopic intervention in pancreatic necrosis was not a thing. So can't wait to hear our two authors talk about this. Yeah, I'm excited. So we will get to it right now. This is the AGA podcast, Small Talk, Big Topics. So why don't we start off, Andy, do you want to tell us about yourself? Sure. I'm Andrew Wong, Professor of Medicine and Director of Interventional Endoscopy at the University of Virginia Health System. I'm an advanced endoscopist who specializes in pancreatic biliary endoscopy and third space endoscopy. And I'm also chair-elect of the AGA Clinical Practice Updates Committee. I have the honor of supervising and being corresponding author of the CPU. And I'm joined by my friend and colleague who in the world of endoscopy needs no introduction, Professor Todd Barron. Uh, Todd was lead author of this CPU and Todd, please tell us about yourself. So my name is Todd Barron. I'm professor of medicine at the division of gastroenterology and hepatology, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I also do therapeutic endoscopy and had the privilege of being first author on this and have been involved with treating pancreatic necrosis since about 1993 or four. Okay, fantastic. So why don't we start off here? Maybe Andy, you can feel this. Can you explain really what a CPU or clinical practice update is and what the role in uh, clinical medicine is? It's a great question. AGA clinical practice updates or CPUs uh, are documents that are meant to provide timely guidance on a topic of high clinical importance. Often these uh, documents are in an area where the published literature is not sufficient or robust enough to support formal analysis, such as using grade methodology that you might find in an AGA guideline. 
These um, expert reviews are framed around best practice advice points. And these BPAs are agreed upon by the authors and they reflect landmark and recent published articles in the field. Uh, the BPAs are then vetted by the AGA governing board and also by the journal editors. It goes through a pretty uh, defined process. After the CPU is written, uh, the CPU is also internally vetted and reviewed by the Clinical Practice Updates Committee. And finally, it goes through a round of external peer review by the publishing journal, in this case, Gastroenterology. So really, they're meant to provide an update uh, by experts in an area where the, there may be a knowledge gap or really the literature falls short um, of having a, an official guideline. So why was it time to do one of these CPUs on pancreatic necrosis? What made it ripe for investigation right now? So it was actually um, a perfect time in that the AGA had put forth guidelines looking at the acute management of pancreatitis. But really the data then fell short after about 48 to 72 hours. And in a subset of these patients, 10 or 20% of those with pancreatitis are actually going to be um, much sicker and actually be at risk for necrosis. And uh, pancreatic necrosis is an area that has been associated with high mortality over the years. And people like Todd and then myself over time have worked on ways to mitigate these, this problem, specifically through the use of interventional endoscopy. Speaking of which, then, with the CPU, what are the biggest changes to clinical practice and the updates that we should highlight for the listeners? Well, we wanted to focus on the use of therapeutic endoscopy in this space. Um, this is something that during my career, spanning back to 2007 onwards, it's really taken, I think, a quantum leap forward in a couple of ways um, with technology and techniques. And I think having Todd here is uh, perfect because he's credited as being one of the pioneers and if not probably the first person to do this kind of advanced endoscopy for pancreatic necrosis. So Dr. Barrett, speaking of, you know, being one of the first people to take care of these pancreatic necrosis endoscopically to what you do now. So what has been the evolution in the world of pancreatic necrosectomy? I got into this field actually somewhat accidentally because shortly after fellowship, I started doing interventions for pancreatic pseudocysts because I saw a lot of chronic pancreatitis. And I was referred a patient that had what we thought was a pancreatic pseudocyst. And at the time, we didn't really recognize pseudocysts from pancreatic necrosis. And it was a case of what we now call walled-off pancreatic necrosis. We didn't have a nomenclature for that at that time. And so I, we only had traditional plastic stints. So I, I placed two plastic stints in this patient that was more than four weeks out from an episode of pancreatitis. Everything went well, discharged the patient home. She called me about 72 hours later with fever to 102 to 103, which was really unusual for a procedure that wasn't complicated. So I got a CT and realized that the fluid component had come out and exposed what was the underlying necrotic material, which often cannot be distinguished on CT scan, as was the case. And so I didn't know what to do, and I sent the patient for surgery, and the surgeon called me about 9 or 10 o'clock at night after he operated, and he said, you have no idea what you're doing. You should have never done anything like this. This is, you know, pancreatic necrosis. It's not a pseudocyst you don't understand. So I, I took all that, and then on the heels of that, that woman was in the hospital about four or five weeks, Open surgery was done back then for this. On the heels of that, I was referred to a case that was almost identical. 
And I was like, no, 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 this has to be a pseudocyst. So I did the same thing, put the stents in, sent them home 72 hours later, same thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I can't call the surgeon. He's going to kill me. So I called uh, Dick Kazarek, who was a faraway mentor of mine, and said, what, what can I possibly do? And he said, well, you could go back in and put a nasocystic irrigation tube in because surgeons and radiologists irrigate, 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 and you might be able to get by with that. And so sure enough, I did that. Patient was out of the hospital within a week, resolved everything. And so I realized, okay, I might be onto something. So I actually started intentionally then draining these, recognizing what they were and draining them, but only using irrigation. But I realized that sometimes it's a really slow process. People don't like a tube in their nose. And so when I got to Mayo Clinic, a lot of patients come from distances and they don't want to be discharged with a, a tube in their nose. They want to have a resolution before they leave the area. So I then started doing direct necrosectomy, which was not reported by me, but I started doing that to hasten the process by driving in these cavities and using tools and equipment to clean out all the solid debris. And so I did a study that compared historically the patients I'd done at Mayo with irrigation to the patients who I did direct necrosectomy and showed there was a significant improvement in duration of disease or time to resolution. And so um, I started doing that quite a bit. What's really changed the landscape is the use of self-expandable metal stents. Most of the time we use luminal opposing metal stents that are up to 20 millimeters in diameter. And that allows a lot of obviously fluid to, to, to flow from these, uh, but it actually can also resolve these walled off necrosis collections without necessarily having to do a direct necrosectomy because there are downsides to actually doing a direct necrosectomy. And so I would say that that's probably been the evolution is from plastic stents and irrigation to, you know, direct necrosectomy to now placing these large bore stents and then reserving necrosectomy for patients who don't respond to placement of the stents. And that's what we mentioned when we wrote the article was we recommended that patients have that approach using luminal opposing metal stents. If you're going to go endoscopically, that we, you should reserve direct necrosectomy for those patients who don't respond to that approach. If I can unpack that a little bit, I think for our audience, uh, that might include fellows or people who are not routinely doing this kind of thing. Uh, Todd covered a lot of ground. You know, in the beginning when I was training, uh, cyst gastrostomy for pseudocyst was still something not widely done by everybody. Todd was a pioneer. And we fast forward from there to, you know, we started using um, metal, metal stents. The biliary ones were often too small when you had necrosis. And we started using these esophageal stents off-label. This is all off-label. Around that time also, EUS, uh, uh, therapeutic EUS was really making a push. And, there, you know, there was a shift also from doing a lot of this work with radiographic guidance to EUS guidance. So those are two major innovations that I think helped it. And then as Todd kind of also very eloquently talked about the uh, development of these lumina-posy metal stents, which can kind of give you a better wide access um, port that, um, you know, kind of keeps the two lumens um, in good apposition, reducing the risk of a frank perforation peritonitis, I think has really made it technically a little easier. Now, I think the um, 
science and the medicine behind it still, that, that takes some experience and uh, probably something that we should talk about. So just out of curiosity, with these new advances that you're describing, Todd and Andy, what was the decrease in the endoscopic necrosectomies? Was it a significant percentage decrease? And how much what was it end up decrease preventing surgical need for intervention? Well, I can I can take that question. So I think that it took a long time for people to recognize that the endoscopic therapy was the way to go. You know, a lot of pancreatic necrosis was sort of in the hands of surgeons. Um, and even though they would admit later that these are very, very poor operations for sick patients, they were sort of loath to give it up. And I think they were very skeptical that we could handle this. So I think it took a lot of experience from many, many centers over time to show that this was a better method than surgery. What people don't realize or may not realize is that this is not like taking out a, a diseased appendix or a diseased gallbladder. Operating on pancreatic necrosis is not a really good operation. And so it, it, the tissue planes can be difficult. Uh, it's associated with a lot of morbidity and wound problems and fistula and these sorts of things. And I think over time, and certainly the Dutch pancreatitis study group has shown that these endoscopic interventions can really prevent the need for open surgery. So I think it's really become more and more an acceptance, not necessarily, so let's say, a true randomized trial, although, again, the Dutch group did look at endoscopic therapy as a step-up approach to show that you, you could avoid surgery and you could also improve the outcome. But with the more and more acceptance and surgeons accepting it, I think that the need for surgery has really gone down and the expertise that's now becoming more and more widespread. So when, as um, Andy mentioned, a lot of this was only done in academic centers, and, and you could argue that maybe it should be, but it's made its way to a broader audience of people that can do these things, and I think that's also uh, helped as well. Yeah, I would add there's certainly expertise um, that's outside of the academic centers. I think it's just important to you know, know that your setting has the right backup um, be it interventional radiology for bleeding or for large drains um, or surgery. You know, I think a team approach, um, and I've learned this from reading Todd's stuff, is I think it's still really critical. You know, like he was saying, um, if you don't do a lot of therapeutic EUS, I think putting in a drain is not wrong. That might be enough. Um, if you're not comfortable doing a necrosectomy or don't have the backup, perhaps placing a metal stent and letting it be may be enough. And if the patient's not improving, then transferring to someone like Todd or myself, probably very wise. But, you know, in places where you have a talented surgeon, like, um, you know, one of our co-authors, and I'll introduce them in a sec, but, you know, where you have a really good GI surgeon, there are also routes that they can take that are minimally invasive that can kind of reduce the need for open necrosectomy. So it sounds like both of you mentioned a complex team or multidisciplinary team with surgeons, radiologists, and obviously advanced endoscopists. So what's each person's role, you'd say, in managing pancreatic necrosis? I think it's, it's in, in everyday practice, you know, the, the, the most ideal thing would literally have a conference, just like a tumor board, where you could actually sit down and every discipline discuss each approach and, and maybe even standardize it within the institution. Unfortunately, that's that's difficult to do. I think that each discipline really needs to know, you know, partly what their role is in caring for these patients 
and if they're called what they should do. A lot of it's now being deferred to gastroenterologists to take care of. But I think we mentioned we have surgeons, we have interventional radiologists, we have endoscopists, but we also ought to mention that what's also helped is intensivists in these patients who are extremely, can be extremely ill. That's what's interesting is there's a broad range of illness with these patients, but intensivists, nutritional support is a big thing as well. We mentioned that in the CPU. So again, whether or not people actually get together and talk about this or if it's functionally that there is that opportunity that it's recognized within the center that this is how we approach it and this is each person's role within it. But there is obviously a lot of overlap, right? Because as Andy mentioned, less invasive surgical approaches are are done at some institutions more, let's say, than endoscopy. So there is that variability within an academic or even non-academic center if somebody has a real interest within that center of taking care of these patients, it, it, it very well may be surgery, but not the traditional open surgery, as, as um, Andy mentioned. Other than the evolution of endoscopic therapies here, are there other key highlights in the CPU that you guys want to point out for the listenership that may not be the one uh, with the scope in their hands? There are a couple of things, and I think, and I'll let Todd expound on some of this, um, you know, there are there are important points, and I'll refer the listener to our CPU about antibiotic use and nutrition. Um, we'll probably get into nutrition a little bit further. It's around dinner time, and we're gastroenterologists, so food is an important topic. But you know, when we're talking about necrosis and when to go into the uh, Waldorf necrosis, I think that's an important topic. And I think you know, hearing from Todd and uh, myself might be good. Uh, you know, really, we're talking about patients who have infected uh, pockets. And that's typically easier to f- detect because they might have emphysematous pancreatitis, quote unquote, or air seen on the CT scan. However, some of these patients, it's unclear if it's sterile necrosis or not. Often a percutaneous biopsy doesn't give you the whole picture. And you have to look for persistent unwellness and signs of failure to advance, improve, to eat. And so it's not always such an easy decision when to jump in. And we're, you know, we're talking about things that can, a procedure that can lead to significant adverse events. So, you know, I think getting Todd's approach to that, I think might be good too. You know, when, when do you actually pop the necrotic cavity? Yeah, that's a great question. We do intervene on sterile necrosis. What I guess the listener should, should realize is that sterile necrosis especially Waldorf necrosis, doesn't kill patients, right? Because they're beyond the acute illness usually. So sterile Waldorf necrosis is usually later. The patient went through the ICU part of it, and generally they're not critically ill. And so you want to choose an intervention that's going to accelerate them getting better, but yet not introduce the adverse events, right? So we can talk, if we just skip forward to to infected necrosis, that's generally not well managed just with antibiotics. So we, we understand that we have to do an intervention and we the risk benefit really is in favor of doing something interventional. So the decision making is harder when it's sterile uh, because again, like I said, the patient isn't actively literally dying from that disease, but yet they may be unwell. And so that's a hard part. I always say you treat the patient, not the CT scan. So even if the CT scan looks bad, some patients actually are clinically improving 
And if they're gradually improving and they're able to at least maintain nutrition, they don't have gastric outlet obstruction, you can limp them along because we know at least the longer you wait, probably the easier and better outcome it is. Whereas, as you mentioned, in, in the infected ones, often they, they can still be very, very ill in the, in sick in the ICU or tremendously ill, and they need an intervention. So it's easier when it's overtly infected. But as again, he mentioned, there's, there's this gray zone of, well, we can't really tell. Generally speaking, what I rely on is if a patient did reasonably well, got out of the hospital, wasn't doing great, but got readmitted, and all of a sudden their white count, which was stable at, let's say, 12, 13,000, all of a sudden bumps up to 25, 30,000, you know, obviously that's, that's a big change. But other times it's not as straightforward because you have inflammatory responses that can mimic infection. So it does take somewhat of judgment in terms of when to actually do an intervention. But as, as Andy mentioned, when you see air in it, whether that's air from bacteria that make air, and my feeling is it's more likely they have a fistula to either the duodenum or the colon that's introduced the air, and that introduces the infection that's a little bit easier to say, okay, that's a sign, but not everybody obviously has that that's infected, but not everybody has air, I should point out, needs to have an intervention. I've seen some people show up for a CT scan follow-up and you get the stat page from, from somebody that says, oh my gosh, there's air in it. And the first thing they say is, how's the patient? Oh, they're doing great. Well, wait, wait, let's slow down a little bit. That's usually a sign that they fistulize it in the stomach or duodenum, so they haven't introduced a lot of bacteria, and they might do very, very well. But if you see air in a sick patient, then it's clearly an infection, and the, you know that needs an intervention. I guess what I'm saying is there's no hard and fast rules. A lot of it is judgment on clinical. The radiologic features have to be there, and you put together the, the pieces of that. You also want to look at do they have a tremendous amount of what we call the pericolic gutters, right? So most people have a central component that's close to the stomach. That's the things that we go after. But there are very peripheral collections that can dissect down the pelvis and in the pericolic gutters that we might not be able to adequately manage. And those patients either might need percutaneous drainage on one or both sides, or they might need some sort of surgical intervention for that component. So, you know, they can be really, really complex clinically and from a, a strategy of sort of drainage, what to do with these patients. So yeah. basically it goes back to the multidisciplinary approach and the need to have really a, a deep team from a few different areas. Yeah. Yeah. I tell patients, you know, it's a long process and, you know, we're trying to save your life, but surgery is not actually a bad word. You know, I think in the end, some patients will have a disconnected pancreas, disconnected pancreatic duct, they may eventually need to go for a quote-unquote distal or lateral pancreatectomy. Some patients who have what we call bad groove pancreatitis or necrosis in the head, um, it's still possible to, to breed some of these patients, but in the end, they may need getting a Whipple later. But I think the fact of the matter is surgery can't be done in, in this kind of um, setting where a grenade's gone off in your abdomen. You have to keep the patient alive, temporize him or her, work on nutrition. You know, I think it's uh, it's to get them to the next phase where there are more options. So when you're dealing with this level of complexity and this length of time that the treatments are going to cover, what are those conversations with the patients like? How do you kind of prep them for this elongated experience with uh, medical care and the hospital? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point that Andy brought out. And it's a good point you bring out is that you really do. Patients want to get better fast and they don't understand why they're not getting better. And I, I literally tell the patient, imagine what you felt like the day before your pancreatitis. It will take a year, a year. I usually quote them a year. I said, you're lucky if you get there earlier, but it's going to take you. Just think about that. It's going to take a year. It sounds like a long time. It may be really gradual. If you set that expectation that, look, this is, you know, a really, really bad disease, they get frustrated. They want to sort of give up. They want to say, oh, why can't we just have surgery and do this? And you really do have to have those conversations about this being a long-term process and reassurance that we think we can get this resolved, but it's going to take a lot of time. And if you set a year if they're better in six months, then they're happy with you. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I think we should talk about food and getting back to it. You know, I think when I was training and a lot of people still do go this pancreatic rest route, and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, but it may not always be necessary. Patients don't always need to have NPO pancreatic rest with, say, a PEG-J or a Direct-J or a Dobhoff long-term. Now, what's your thoughts about eating and then actually after necrosectomy eating. That's a great point. So I feel like if the patient is hungry enough to eat and can tolerate food, they should be allowed to eat. The only patients that really need TPM these days are patients that have a prolonged ileus or they just don't tolerate PO intake or you've tried naso. Let's say their stomach, they have delayed gastric emptying and you put a post-pyloric feeding tube only for the point of bypassing the stomach, not for resting the pancreas, and they don't respond. So one of those things I just mentioned will get them through without the need for TPM. I think it's a very, very select group of patients now that, that really needs TPM. And we know that it, it improves the outcome because you don't have hematogenous spread of infection. You don't have bloodborne infections. The cost, it's good to have your gut working. So I think certainly I agree that once once they've had the blow up, as 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 Andy mentioned, and and their pancreas, their retroperitoneum is complete mess. You're not going to make it worse by having them eat. So again, the idea of resting the pancreas is probably old teaching. In terms of the, let's say a patient has gastric outlet obstruction or something, and that's the indication you put in a luminal opposing metal stent. Uh, you then pretty much right after that say you know if they when they when they resolve their nausea or they feel like they can eat, I don't limit their diet. We do, without a lot of great science, we limit their PPIs because we think getting acid from the, from the stomach through the luminal opposing metal stent into this cavities can help digest the necrosis. It makes sense. I don't know, again, that we have that much science to support that. But that's one of the other things to, to keep in mind is that we can sort of liberalize their diet and, uh, and and not give them proton pump inhibitors. That feels like one of those things that the patients will actually be grateful for as you have this really hard conversation, of course. Yeah. So uh, who else actually worked on this project with you guys? It was uh, There was a few of your co-authors that I know we wanted to mention. Yeah, we want to acknowledge and thank our co-authors, Chris DeMeo professor of medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and Catherine Morgan, professor of surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina. And it was a big point that we wanted to have diversity of specialties, and because this is a multi-specialty kind of thing. If you guys don't mind me asking or kind of interjecting, 
Here in Charlottesville, we have a phrase, don't poke the skunk. And that's uh, put forth by one of the AGA legendary guys, Dave Puro, one of my mentors. But I think uh, Todd has a story about the art of skunk poking, which I think we definitely have to get on. Yeah. So uh, what I didn't mention is that when I realized that I was onto something with this necrosis and with the irrigation, I put in 11 patients to gastroenterology in 1996, and it was published. So the first report ever of intervening endoscopically on pancreatic necrosis was published in Gastroenterology. And that in and of itself is a really interesting story because I was at University of Alabama, Birmingham, and the Mayo Clinic was actually the entity that handled gastro, which is funny because I went there later. But I bumped into Dick Kazarek at DDW one year, and he said, um, they're going to take your paper. I was one of the reviewers, and I'm going to write an editorial on it. So back then, uh, things were not published uh, online, and um, I knew it was coming out, and I'd run to the mailbox every time, every day looking for that issue of gastroenterology that had my article because I hadn't really published anything of, of, of major you know, worth, I would say. And so I, I run, and there it is. There's the article. I'm like so excited. And then I says, the editorial page, whatever. And so I flip over this, and it says, uh, we called it organized pancreatic necrosis before it was walled off necrosis. And it said, endoscopic therapy of organized pancreatic necrosis, perspectives on skunk poking. So I immediately called Dr. Kazarek because I was somewhat confused about what that was. And he explained to me that uh, in his gravelly voice, if anybody knows him, that He's like, Todd, you know, there's a skunk and he's sitting there and he's not really doing anything. And then you start sticking him and it's hissing and stinking. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I get, I get what you're saying now. <laughs> because once you go down that road of, that's one thing we didn't talk about is if you intervene on sterile necrosis, you've sort of opened the Pandora's box, right? And so you have to see that all the way through to its uh, completion. I recognized relatively quickly that that was something that was really going to make a profound impact, but it took a long time. And it made a lot of people initially uneasy and mad about it, which is a whole other story. But it's, it's nice to see. It's very gratifying to see that it has changed practice and it has been adopted. And I think it's, you know, that's probably of the things I've done in my career, probably the most satisfying. I think that's a great story from uh, the perspective of the trainee or someone who's going to be out in the field pretty new. And that, you know, I think it shows that there is innovation. Uh, it also shows that you know, you need some wisdom and kind of, you know, we also talk about don't perf the principle in your first year or two in practice. And, you know, you kind of have to practice within yourself and do what you think you can do well for the patient. And it also kind of gives you an insight into the life of a young academic clinician and investigator, you know, kind of that initial joy of getting something published and then having to read about your editorial, you know, <laughs> someone editorialize it in a yeah. awesome <laughs> On the flip side, of course, now you have an amazing catchphrase that I feel like really could be a side hustle branding and uh, releasing a Don't Poke the Skunk repeatedly. Right, right. Speaking of which, you guys are saying, you know, if you're, let's say, so inspirational, people want to do this, there's innovation, progress in endoscopic procedures. So who should do these procedures? Can anyone do it? Or some special training, special course? What do you think if someone coming out of fellowship listening to a podcast like, hey, that sounds interesting. I want to get involved. What do they need? You know, our listeners recognize that 
These procedures are, are generally best done by people who have done a year of advanced endoscopy. Now, almost anybody that does ERCP in the U.S. has done an additional year of training in advanced endoscopy. The question really that I think comes up is, when do you take that next step? And what you're doing, if it, if it isn't established, is that research, is that risk-taking, is that, I mean, it's a question that I continually ask myself because I continue to push the envelope and, and color outside the lines almost literally every day. And so you make these incremental progress, you know, almost every day I, I think I'm going to do something different than I did yesterday. But, you know, where, who should be doing that part of it? Who should be the one that sort of steps over the line? And in what sort of environment should they be doing that? I can't really speak to how that is. I think, obviously, when you're in an academic center, you're a little more protected um, because the, I wouldn't say the standards are any different, but certainly there are limitations of things you can, might be able to do in private practice, depending on your situation. So um, most of these really risky things that we do are probably best undertaken within an academic medical center. But it, it, it is, you know, it's somewhat of a, of a somewhat even of an ethical dilemma, right, is to, um, you know, even when I, we use these, some of these devices off label and do new things that nobody's done with them is that it's fine if somebody has a really good outcome. The problem is if somebody doesn't have a good outcome, you have to answer to that. So. I don't know that I can, I can only, you know, philosophize on these, these, pro, these, I wouldn't call them problems, but it's for newer and younger people, if they have good surrounding backup and more senior people, I think that's obviously very helpful. But again, not everybody has that either, you know. Yeah, I do agree. I think for trainees right now, a year of advanced endoscopic training now is, I think, considered um, necessary. But I think to paraphrase the old adage, it's something like a good decision-making comes from experience and experience comes from making bad decisions. You know, and we're talking about stuff where you could uh, perforate people can die, hemorrhage. And I think, you know, you really have to kind of set the stage for the best possible outcome. I'm sure if the stent goes in well and the patient does great, it's great. But there are situations where there could be bleeding, where the lumen opposing metal stent doesn't get deployed right and maybe um, outside the wall of an organ. And you have to be able to kind of problem solve those things. And if you, you know, think that, you know, that may be a little bit of a reach given your support, your your abilities, you know, I think it's, you know, I think it's okay to seek other training or help or even just transfer the patient. I think this is a field that's still in evolution. And one day, you know, for lucky Todd and I may be able to write a guideline on this, but it's an area where we don't have the literature yet to support that kind of level of decision making. So you know, it's just, it's good clinical medicine at an extreme level. So as we kind of wind down our conversation with you guys, obviously both of you had successful careers as innovators, as proceduralists, as gastroenterologists. What advice would you give young professionals, so assistant professors, trainees, fellows, even med students? What was the best advice you got as that you guys were embarking on your career? Well, I trained with Peter Cotton and I went into his office before I finished at Duke, and I didn't do that many ERCPs, and I was really worried about that because there were a lot of people there that wanted to do ERCP, and the training got split quite a bit. And I said, what advice would you give me to how to get better and do 
things better. And he, he completely turned the table and said, just take really, really good care of your patients. Most of the time, they don't know that you're good or you're not good, but they will know if you treat them well or you don't treat them well. And I think that certainly goes a long way is to always try to think of doing the right thing. Sometimes the right thing is doing something. Sometimes the right thing is not doing something for a patient. But I think it's it's to stay involved in their care so they appreciate what you're doing and they know you care about what you're doing for them. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I think after even a year or two of advanced endoscopy training, depending on where you go, or even 10 years of practice, if you didn't kind of go through that, you kind of know what you're good at. But more than not, when you're starting a career, you actually know more what you're maybe not as good at. And, uh, you know, you'll kind of grow within yourself and know what you can do and what your limitations are. And if this is something totally crazy to you, you probably shouldn't do it. But if, you know, you've been able to work up stepwise, you can do a cisgastrostomy well, you've done quite a few of them, you can place metal stents, lumen opposing metal stents. I think it may be within reach. And if you need a little proctoring, that can be found too. But um, yeah, I think it's just this thing of, like Todd saying, take good care of the patient, scope within yourself. And I think, you know, it's a progression that will probably make itself known. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being with us, guys. We really appreciate your time. We'll refer everyone to the CPU actually in the liner notes for the podcast. Okay. Thank you very much. Do you guys have any Twitter accounts that if people want oh, yeah. to reach you and follow you, do you have Twitter handles? I'm going to make one tonight. How's that? <laughs> Is it going to involve skunks? Uh, no, it might involve my go-kart racing. Maybe it'll be something like Red Baron Racer. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have one, but we're working on The committee is working on trying to publicize some of this stuff. So Awesome. All right. Thank All right, you. guys. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD. Podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.